Welcome back to Accelerate Defense, a podcast from Acme General Corp. I'm Ken Harbaugh, principal at Acme and host of this month's episode. On Accelerate Defense, we hear from political figures, military professionals, and other thought leaders about how innovation shapes our national security landscape. My guest today is Bilal Zuberi, general partner at Lux Capital, where he leads investments in emerging science and technology ventures. And I just learned as a graduate of Worcester College in Ohio, which is right down the road from me. Uh, Bilal, welcome to Accelerate Defense. It's great to be here. And boy, you pulled the Ohio connection. You took me back to where I landed in the U.S. when I first came here in 1995. So that's your Ohio roots. This was your first stop? Ohio was my first home in the United States, uh, now 27, 28 years ago. And, you know, Ohio is one of those places that grows on you. So I've obviously stayed close to the university, college, and lots of friends, lots of alumni. It was a great experience. Yes, Ohio indeed grows on you. I married an Ohio girl, and once we, we came back here after... My time in, in the Navy and going back to school, we never left. We're pretty firmly rooted. My brother-in-law actually graduated from Worcester. My sister-in-law was in your class, although, you know, it's a big class, so I won't <laughs> out her. not sure if your path's crossed. But you are a senior partner in a bi-coastal VC firm now, pretty circuitous route from small town Worcester, Ohio, through MIT, where you got your PhD. When did you realize that your future was going to be in building tech companies? So, you know, I was in Ohio doing my undergrad. And as they say, you need to have good mentors. And one of the mentors was a professor of mine who said, you need to do grad school because you're, you're good at science and you should continue the work. I did not know what that meant really, commitment of four, five, six years to do PhD. So I moved over to MIT to start my PhD with the Nobel laureate. And three years into it, I realized through him that, you know, what you really want to work on are big problems that affect people's lives. And his research was that he got the Nobel Prize in 1995, actually the year I landed in the US for ozone depletion theory and how CFCs were destroying the ozone layer and causing cancer and so on. And as I started thinking about, you know, how my work would impact a lot of people, it also dawned on me that I wanted to move at a speed that was faster than what science took usually. And I wanted to be involved in something that had a greater thrust for acceleration. And that very soon, if you're sitting at MIT, leads you to, okay, startups do that. They move fast, they break things. They defy gravity as much as they can. And if they don't defy gravity, they fail. And if they succeed, then they have huge impact. So that led me into the startup world. I actually started a company right after MIT to build environmental pollution control systems. So effectively catalytic converters, diesel particulate filters, emission control devices, and catalytic devices, and commercialize that technology with Corning. And then uh, in 2008, a bunch of VCs came calling saying, you know, hey, You seem to have, you know, obviously deep technical background, but you've now done business and you've hired people and fired people, you've raised capital, you've sold the company. And, you know, so all of that can be very beneficial to the next generation founders. And how about you hang out with us and help these guys? And that took me into venture capital in 2008 when I joined a major VC firm called General Catalyst Partners in Boston to help build companies across a lot of different domains and sectors. And did that for five years. In 2013, I realized that a lot of the activity that I was interested in was happening on the West Coast. Basically, a lot of 
big ideas that seemed a bit out of the ordinary and frankly too ambitious for some people were being done on the West Coast. So I decided to move out here and exclusively focused on deep technology companies where things are at the cutting edges of technology. Technology is pervasive in our lives and is everywhere, right? And so hence, there's a lot of companies that we can talk about that use technology to make our lives better. But my focus was on companies where technology is a key driver, where you're doing something that simply had not even been invented five, 10 years ago. So it's really at the cutting edges. And most importantly, it enables you to solve problems of the magnitude that affect, you know, a billion lives. And that ended up being my focus now for the last 10 years or so. You've said that you, and this is a direct quote, you have to be at least a little bit crazy to imagine the future five to 10 years out. I just heard you reference ideas that were too ambitious for where you were on the East Coast. What were some of the the ideas that first drew you out West and got you excited about what was happening there? You know, starting anything from scratch is hard. It's difficult. Even if you were starting an Indian restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, it's hard, right? It's, there's nothing easy about building a business. My view is that if you're going to do something that's hard, you're going to do something that's going to take several years of your life and a lot of opportunity costs. Because a lot of us, especially if you're educated and so on, you can have other jobs, especially in today's economy. Then you might as well do something that has a big impact, right? And of course, there's impact you can have, you know, via teaching and politics and other things. But for me, the calling was startups. And so I started to focus on technology sectors that were addressing very large problems. So for example, one of the early problems I got interested in was observing Earth, right? Like we live on this Earth, but so little is known about it. All we know about it is, you know, at that point at least, was a few satellite images that would be shared publicly. Oh, this is what the China... Great Wall looks like from the space or, you know, here's there's some flooding or maybe some forestry in Africa or, you know, Amazon forest burning. But the reality was that I would like to know what developments are happening around me. I'd like to know, you know, how food economy is changing around the world. I'd like to know how oceans are rising. I mean, climate change is a big issue in my life. And the idea was, how can you use technology to better understand what's happening? How can you have a better sense of capture and analytics around the reality of Earth. And there were companies, you know, that I met on the West Coast that were building satellite systems that were affordable. They were not $600 million to put a satellite in space, but a satellite that was the size of a shoebox and cost like $100,000. And the idea was, let's put that many of them in space instead of a few hundreds, maybe thousands of them in space and have an image of the Earth, you know, every hour. So now you have real-time analysis of what's happening in the world. Now, you can utilize that for defense purposes to understand how adversities are moving or, you know, positioning their weapons and whatnot. But you can use it to understand how agriculture is doing, how corn plantations are doing and, and how farming is happening in Africa or drought systems or glacier melting and so on and so forth. And the same systems utilized for how Target is doing relative to Walmart by looking at the parking lot count of cars in those parking lots at certain times. So... That's one example of an area where what seems like a simple technology is actually pretty complex to implement. We're talking about satellites and space and electronics and communications and machine learning and AI and all of that included in one. But once you solve that, you actually open up so many different industries as potential applications that benefit from it. How common is it for the people sitting in your chair, the funders, 
to have also experienced the trials of founding and running a startup themselves. You've got to bring a perspective that is incredibly valuable in your boardrooms. You know, maybe it sounds self-serving, but I would think having startup experience is really valuable for a number of reasons. First and foremost, our business is actually a people business, right? I invest in people. I don't run companies. I don't own majority shares in these companies. Great founders do. We are indebted to amazing entrepreneurs who decide that they're going to invest their time, effort, money, and intelligence in building companies. So it's really about managing people and people come with emotions, and especially in startups where it's a roller coaster ride. Having gone through that roller coaster ride gives you empathy, gives you empathy to understand what that founder is going through. When they quit their jobs and they don't know where their next paycheck is coming from, mortgage is going to be due. They're hiring people who are themselves quitting jobs and you feel this pressure on you that, oh my God, three, four, five people just quit their jobs and you know I better be able to provide for them. You know, dealing with those roller coaster rides you know, requires empathy and you get it if you've dealt with it yourself. But the second most important thing is as these companies go through various stages of growth, if you haven't seen that stage before, the advice you're giving them sometimes could be completely hollow and perhaps devoid of reality. And so you have to understand what it means when you tell somebody to tighten your belt and be conservative with cash and try to operate very frugally. But there are times when you say, this is the right time that we need to spend money to grow and capture market share, right? When is the right time to be able to press the accelerator or not? When you're interviewing people and these teams that start off as founders and they're bringing on, you know, heads of engineering, heads of sales, heads of marketing, CFO, if you've never hired these people, if you never worked with these people that are world-class people, you wouldn't know how to help these guys hire some of the best talent. And again, you, if you've done this, you're more helpful to the founders and entrepreneurs. In our work, investing in a startup is not like buying stock. It's not taking a bet. It's actually becoming partners and helping build. And partners that help you build have to bring something to the table besides money. Otherwise, you're a dumb investor. How do you manage growth when that maverick streak, when that little bit of craziness, is, as you describe it, is so essential to getting the rocket off the launching pad. Once you start to bring in those directors of engineering and those outside experts, how do you keep the culture of that company aggressive and insurgent and still able to take on the establishment? Startups stop being startups when they lose that hustle and that culture of walking through walls to make shit happen. It is extremely important to maintain and manage that culture. Obviously, people who join early are not only believers, you know, and founders especially, are not only believers in the space and the opportunity, but they almost have religion. They will do anything to make that company succeed. But then you, when you bring on professional management, they are executives that are joining this company when they had seven other options to join. And, you know, if they don't see the success that they anticipate, they could leave and join somewhere else. There are two, three things that are really important in, in thinking about it. Number one, you see a lot of great startups continue to have their founders stay associated in senior positions in the companies until much later in their life. Founder DNA is extremely important. Founders believe what this company needs to look like and frankly, when the company needs to pivot and pirouette, founders have the balls that it takes to say, I'm going to do it. Many other people 
would do what would be the easy path versus making the hard decisions for the long-term success of a company. Founders do that. The second thing that's really important is to have everybody aligned on the mission. So whoever is the CEO, their most critical task in the company, besides assembling resources, is aligning everybody on the mission of the company. What is this company built to do? Not only what it is doing right now, but what is it built to do and are we accomplishing that? And if that goal needs to change, it needs to be communicated throughout the company again and again. Founder is the, you know, the CEO and the founders are like the chief spokespersons for the company. They have to keep banging the drum inside and outside the company all the time. It never goes away. You can never enshrine it and assume that everybody else gets it and your marketing or HR department will share it with the company. It is the job of the founder and the job of the CEO to be banging that drum inside and out. And then the third thing is to measure your successes along the way and celebrate them. That helps people see what is celebrated within the company. If you celebrate hard work, people will work hard. If you celebrate diversity, people will bring diversity into your organization. If you celebrate transparency and openness, people will bring transparency, right? So you have to actively celebrate what you want your culture to be. And if you start celebrating nonsense, you know, oh, Friday beer parties, and that's what we celebrate, and we don't know why we do it, very soon it becomes any other company where people like, you know, I've got to go to this because my boss is going and, you know, but they don't really care about it. But if you celebrate a friendship in an openness, a relationship, people will want to be at those meetings. People will want to contribute. So I think it takes a lot of active effort, which is, by the way, why, you know, a lot of startups that fail, fail because during intense times of hard work and stuff, those founders overlook the importance of carrying the rest of the organization with them. They become too busy doing the minute things that they think they need to do. And they forget about the fact that there's another set of organizations that they've hired that need to be brought along. Great organizations are usually built by leaders that know how to do that. They have many ways of doing that. They have different ways of doing that, different personalities that they bring to the table, but there's a ways of doing that. And I'll stop here with one example. Take Tesla, for example. This is a large company. Their market cap is right now multiples of the market cap of nearly every other American OEM combined. You know, it's bigger than GM, Ford, Chrysler combined. However, Elon Musk as a leader has created a culture inside Tesla that despite the market size craziness that they have experienced, they all still feel they're the underdog. Right? Every single employee that comes to work feels like the world is against us. We're doing something that people think is impossible, but it is really important for us to do that you know, for the environment, for this or that. And they all feel that they're the underdogs compared to the large companies, despite the fact that they're larger than all other OEMs combined. They think GM Ford are the kingpins and we're the underdog when the reality is Tesla is in an order of magnitude bigger company in market cap than GM or Ford. What are examples of other companies in the Lux portfolio that are doing that well. And I'm going to force you to talk about Sale Drone if you don't volunteer, but you know, give me your, your top list. Yeah, Sale Drone is actually a great example of that. Sale Drone is a company that puts in its mission you know, that we are going to utilize technology to transform ocean economy. And everybody in that company loves the oceans. Before I met you know, sail drone CEO, my experience of the oceans was maybe five times being on a boat out on the ocean. And you go there and you realize people who love the ocean, what that's like. They're sailors. 
they have, you know, salt in their hair when you talk to them. They, you know, they want to be on a boat when they're talking to you, right? That pervasiveness to the organization means that it's not, even though they may be sitting on a desk coding at any given time, their brain, mind, all that, it's around, you know, what the oceans are and what role oceans play in our world. They play a very important part in the environment, you know, managing our fisheries and managing our climate. And, and they also do a lot of things for national security and so on. So that culture is very important. That leader, for example, Richard, who's the CEO there, he would be a prophet if he wasn't a entrepreneur and a founder because he truly believes in it. You know, he's been working on it for 15, 20 years. There's nothing else he would rather do. This company could be most successful company in the world and he would still be doing it. And this company could be struggling and failing and he could get 10 other jobs, but he would still be doing the same thing, right? That's what it takes. So everybody sees that, including the board, all of us see that. And it gives us that additional motivation to put that extra effort in. And last but not the least is that he's very careful in surrounding himself with people who are also very mission-driven. There's in, in venture capital, and especially for a company like SailDrone, that's very mission-driven, it becomes important that you don't hire mercenaries. You don't hire people who are coin-operated, where if you give me enough money or if you give me enough incentives, I'll come there. But if that incentive ever looks weak, I'll just move on to something else. Mercenaries, not only you have attrition problems and all, but the most important is that they pollute the culture. Right? You only need one bad apple in a basket to start you know, destroying everything else. They pollute the culture because everybody else around them starts thinking that, you know, what else could I be doing? And the reality is there's nothing else you could be doing that's more important than the mission of this company. And I think SailDrone has done an amazing job of bringing people who are really committed to it, everything from the board level down. You know, there's former rear admirals who are on the board, their advisors who are very senior military people who, who you know, spend a lot of time on it. They're board members who are, you know, been committed to it for years now and will stay committed to it. And then every employee, and I've met many of them, you know, I, every time I go there, I go around shaking hands on the floor. Every single person feels that they're building something that's larger than themselves. And they are proud to be a part of that. You know, whether it's solving climate change problems or whether it's solving fisheries problems or our telecommunication problems or national security. I don't know if you noticed, but um, big brouhaha happened in the news and I woke up to seeing, you know, hey, an Iranian vessel had captured a sail drone and were trying to tow it away when the, that sail drone vessel was doing work for the U.S. Navy Fifth Fleet. And U.S. Navy had to intervene and a patrol coast boat had to show up and a helicopter had to show up and an Iranian boat, you know, which was a IRGC, Revolutionary Guard boat, they had to release the sail drone. Now, it's an incident that happened. Thankfully, it didn't flare up to anything larger it was a historic moment for Sailron. Like, oh my God, you know, that this happened. But, you know, talking to everybody felt this deep sense of mission that what we're doing for protecting democracies and protecting the U.S. Navy and working with the U.S. Navy with all the mission that the U.S. Navy has is extremely important. And we almost felt this energy inside us that we are on a mission and we have to accomplish this. There's no backing down. Not one of us woke up when we invested in Saildrone thinking one day Iranian Revolutionary Guards will be capturing our vehicles. That was not in my memo when I made the investment, right? But now that we're in the thick of it, you know what? We feel committed because we know Saildrone is on the right path and doing the right things. I'm glad you brought up the incident in the Gulf because I wanted to read one of your tweets. You said, 
in showing a picture of the interception, there's a, a U.S. Navy cruiser pulling up alongside the IRGCN ship that had, I guess, hijacked this sail drone. You wrote, let's be clear, sail drone won't be intimidated. I mean, it's not often that you get to be that badass when running a tech company, right? I mean, that has to work its way through the whole organization, that mission orientation must be helped by the fact that lives are literally on the line and you're helping make the world safer for democracy, not to be too cliche. I'm glad that you mentioned that because it has to be underscored. When I say a sense of mission, people don't start companies to make money. The greatest companies that have been built were not built because they were people were trying to make a quick buck. They were people who were missionaries who wanted the world to be a certain way. Whether we like, dislike, hate Mark Zuckerberg, he wanted the world to be connected, right? That was his mission. The guy is a multi-billionaire. The guy could retire and buy islands off some coast of some country and we never have to hear from it. But he takes abuse, you know, public abuse, because he still continues to believe that his mission is not accomplished. Elon Musk is the same way, whether he wants to go to Mars or he wants to do, you know, whatever he wants to do, he is on a mission, you know? What motivates people like them or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs and others? It's not that, you know, I've made money and I need more money. What do you do with that money? <laughs> you know, it becomes a bigger work. Look for what Bill Gates has been doing for 20 years. He's trying to get rid of his money and he can get rid of it, right? So the mission becomes very important. And it's not very often in a startup world where you see that concept of mission awareness, which is often, you know, nebulous and, you know, diffused, crystallized this way. Why we're doing this in the first place? Why are we investing in defense technologies? Why Silicon Valley has a role to play in protecting national defense? People's perception of Silicon Valley as eating pizza and writing code so you can build, build dating websites is not true. I mean, I'm sure there are people who are doing that and lots of people doing that. But there are people sitting here who are building technologies like they built in, you know, you know when Silicon Valley first started you know, building radar systems and missile guidance systems and whatnot that Lockheed Martin was based here and the venture capital industry that grew around it. They're building systems that are protecting lives around the world. You know, when I have companies like Evolve Technologies that are literally protecting and, you know, and they can't talk about it very much, but preventing mass shootings from happening because people are walking in with long guns, multiples of them inside buildings and they stop them. That's a sense of mission. That would not have happened without the use of technology. That's what technology does for us. When we have cybersecurity systems that are protecting our railway systems and airports and every day that we are attacked by ransom artists and nation states that are enemies of the U.S., that is really technology doing important work. And I think it's really important to underscore that because we don't want the next generation, especially because, you know, I'm getting to that age where, you know, the next generation is going to take. We don't want the next generation to think that technology is just about goofing around on the Internet. Technology has a critical role to play in every aspect of our lives, and startups can go and build companies that do that. They need to solve climate change, they need to solve water issues, they need to solve poverty issues, sanitation issues, and provide security. I just came back from Pakistan. I was visiting my family there. Massive floods. Third of the country could be underwater. There's 230 million people who live there. It's billions and billions and billions of dollars of damage in a country that could barely afford anything, right? They could barely afford fuel this summer to buy for, you know, for, for the cars. So, you know, when you start thinking about what role does technology play? Well, extremely important role. Let's go figure out how we can do that and let's try to build companies that address that rather than only focusing on things that make a quick buck. 
How's your family doing? Family is good. Family is safe. Um, physically safe, thankfully, but feeling the pressure, obviously, like everybody else, that everything has become two to five times more expensive. We are doing a lot of charity work ourselves and friends who are in, in the field saving lives. This is a climate change catastrophe unfolding right before our eyes, right? There's no other way to explain it. The monsoon season that's lasted twice as long, the seasonality of it has become, you know, it used to be three times a year, it's five times a year, six times a year, glaciers that are melting, that are completely inundating the rivers. And it's happening, look, this could be North Carolina or it could be Pakistan, it's the same idea. When levees break and water enters a city, it does not discriminate on the basis of your passport, right? And people's lives are destroyed. And I think we have to figure out technologies to solve that. We have to figure out how do we understand it. And, you know, at this point, not only, you know, do we need to become a carbon negative economy, but also we have to figure out how to deal with climate change because it's happening. Unfortunately, it's a little too late. So we have to figure out how we're going to deal with the effects of climate change and whether it's geoengineering or resiliency built into our supply chains and built into our housing systems and all, technology will solve the problem. We can't solve that problem by using legacy techniques. You are very outspoken in your advocacy and your activism. Does your humanitarian streak inform your investing? And I I mean that intentionally provocatively because I imagine there are some real risks to that when you're investing other people's money. Look, first and foremost, I truly believe I'm a human first before I'm a technologist or a venture capitalist or whatever, right? So humanity trumps everything else. Second, I am one of the beneficiaries of U.S. generosity, that they accepted me into this country, made me a citizen and gave me all the freedoms that U.S. enjoys. And because I was not born into it, but I was given these freedoms, I take them very seriously. I think this is an important role I have to play in society. I don't have any grandioseness about, you know, what I can achieve. But the fact that I have freedom of liberty, freedom of speech, liberty and, you know, and matters of justice are really important and enshrined in being American. And I think it applies to everyone around the world. So I should speak out for it. And then the third thing is, you know, growing up, I was a big fan. I remember growing up, I had posters of Einstein in my room. I thought I would become a scientist, maybe, you know, physicist, but maybe wasn't good enough. But You know, one of the things Einstein said when he started working on general relativity back in the day was, you know, why are you working on this? And he says, you know, because I can afford to work on it. A lot of younger scientists cannot because it's such a crazy idea or it was at that point thought or like, what does this mean? You know, are you like going against religion that all of the world can be explained with one general formula or one general equation? He could afford to work on it because he believed in it. And it led to obviously lots of interesting science down the road by other scientists. I feel a little bit of the same way, that if I can't speak out about issues that I care about, whether it's human rights issues or protecting democracy in this country and around the world or investing in what I believe is the right technologies to be able to advance humanity, then how can I expect anybody else to do that, right? And if we all stay quiet because we just protect our own self-interest, then I think as a society, we truly suffer. So to me, yes, there's been negative ramifications of that every now and then. But you know what? I still believe in the goodness of humanity more than the evils that come with it. The last sentence of your bio on the Lux website is, well, I find it moving. It says, he is an immigrant citizen in this country and thankful every day for opportunities that he has been afforded here. I truly mean it. I truly believe it. Look, the freedoms I have, my own siblings who live in other parts of the world don't have. What I can say about my own government here, they cannot say even about their neighbors. And that is something that we truly have to cherish in this country. And we truly have to protect it and defend it. And to be honest, 
you know, I, I have my own political views that tend to be very left-leaning, but that has never stopped me from investing in somebody who has political views that could be very right-leaning. Why? Because the day I do that, I've gone against my own ideals, right? And I think it's little things like this that truly do matter. When I show up at a protest, you know, there were protests when immigrants were being banned from Muslim countries and whatnot. And, you know, just as a citizen, I showed up at these protests. And I have to tell you, I didn't know what to expect. I was just like there as a you know young man at a protest. I met a whole bunch of my young CEOs of portfolio companies who were there. They were all there. And so many of them came up to me and to my surprise were like, we're so happy you're here because now we feel that we're not doing something wrong. We're not putting our companies at risk. We're glad to see you here. And yes, there was a little bit of, you know, like they thought I was a more important person than I probably really am. But the reality is, man, it really matters. Like role models matter. What do I tell my kids? I want my kids growing up knowing what truly matters. You know, yes, they're going to be more privileged because of where they're growing up and the life that they're leading. But if that's what they do and they hide away in their compounds and, and whatever, this is a tremendous loss for the country and for their own lives. So for me, everything comes down to what I say is <laughs> what, what I say is what you get. I wear my heart on my sleeve because I truly do believe that we've built an amazing country which gives us these freedoms. And I think there's protections. Look, risk is everywhere. You brought that up and I think about it all the time, you know. But at the same time, this country also is, you know, there is rule of law in this country after all. And I truly still believe in it. It wasn't long ago that it seemed like Silicon Valley was just, there was a cultural anathema to working with DOD. I mean, there was a damn near revolt at Google. I have asked some of our previous guests about this. There was something of a, just a mood shift after the invasion of Ukraine, this realization that, oh my God, the world is a dangerous place after all, and there are good guys and bad guys. Lux has a, a pretty long and robust track record of partnering with the DOD. How have you managed that tension, if it exists at all, in the companies you're guiding down that path? Look, this is, this is an important topic. First and foremost, I was in this country when 9-11 happened. And I could see the sense of patriotism that was in people's hearts. And they, many of them didn't know what to do with it. You know, many of them enlisted in the army when they were young and others were working on technologies and companies like Palantir came out and others. Evolve Technologies founder built a reveal, same idea, preventing bombs from getting onto the planes. There was a real palpable sense of what do we do? How do we protect ourselves against this? And I think that has sustained and obviously what has happened in the last few years has even heightened that realization that we may be at war with large nation states that we may not want to say we are at war, but frankly we are, whether it's China or Russia or whatever. We may be having proxy wars and we may be having cyber wars or whatever, but we are in a conflict and our freedoms depend on us prevailing. That's not lost on anybody. What happened, however, was during the same time frame, you know, when the internet came around in, in, in mid-90s, People very young started building companies before they really experienced life, right? They were 13, 15-year-old coders. They never went to work in the military. They never had a real job that they had to you know, flip burgers even. They, they frankly never lived in places like Ohio. They were 14-year-old, 15-year-old, 18-year-old who would like ship out to Silicon Valley and some office complex here coding away and becoming rich and not knowing what to do with them, right? So they were wealthy. But they had no real connection to, you know, life in Ohio and the troubles that people do deal with in states around the country. 
So in some ways, they had wealth, which started to get spent on stupidities, right? You know, real estate prices here went up. People started buying islands in other parts of the world to just go party and whatever. You know, not realizing that, you know, what I realized, which is I come from a country of 230 million people. Everybody else is relatively poor. And I'm just a lucky guy who got this lucky golden ticket to come out here and become a citizen and build life here. There's nothing that makes me any special than anybody else that's back home that didn't have that opportunity. So these people did not realize that. And I think that's where it started to become more of a, you know, it's all kumbaya. Why are we doing war? Why is there war in the first place? Almost like philosophical questions that they chose not to read on, but just form opinions on, right? Not realizing that you have all these freedoms you have because there are people who enlist like yourself, who enlist in the military and go out there and put their lives at risk, right? And we have an army and a navy and an air force for a reason. The fact that you can buy your fuel at a dollar a gallon is because we have partnerships around the world that we protect U.S. national interests around the world, right? People don't think about all of these things and started to have opinions. And that started to pervade in the technology companies more. But it was never throughout the technology industry. It was a few organizations that happened to be very loud. Look, mid-90s, early 2000s, Google was it, right? Google was the kingpin of everything. So people didn't want to speak out if they disagreed with that point of view. But I think what you're seeing over the last five years is, entrepreneurs in every sector have stood up and said, you know, look, we need to work with the U.S. government. We need to find ways to support the U.S. government, whether it's the digitization of our civil corp or whether it's, you know, working with a defense department and military and so on. But we have to provide technology because it just so turns out that, you know, until 30 years ago, advanced technologies in any sector were mostly funded by DOD or somewhere by DOD. They would be accessible to the defense sector first. Then they would become available to the large enterprises who could afford it as it became a little bit cheaper. And only many years later would they become affordable enough for ordinary consumers to have access to it. But over the last 20, 25 years, the most advanced technologies, especially in machine learning, AI, software, enterprise tools, consumer devices, you and I have access to it first. Then it goes to corporations who might say, okay, you can bring your own devices to work, right? So we had iPhones before the corporations allowed us to use iPhones. And only six years later, after iPhone invented, but it was a four-star general able to get access to it. Okay? So military now gets the technology last. And I think we need to change that. So all these advanced computer vision systems and advanced machine learning systems, many of them are being developed by commercial companies. Facial recognition technologies was available on Facebook and Google like 10 years ago for your photos. Right? And only now it's becoming available to DOD to say, who are the suspects entering government facilities that could be creating problems, right? So I think we have to figure out how do we change that? And I think entrepreneurs are building companies to change that. Entrepreneurs are also realizing that governments work on large-scale problems, and large-scale problems usually represent very large markets. So if you're capitalist and you're driven to build companies, you say, I need to address those. You know, I need to address mobility problems. I need to address food availability problems. You know, Steve Jobs, with all his smartness, could not have imagined that one of the biggest companies that will be built on the iPhone platform would be a, an app to call effectively a cab. But that's what it is. Turns out that we did not build, government could not build the transportation system that was needed in cities around the U.S. So Uber and Lyft emerged to say, let's go build that transportation system. Okay, it's not as affordable as a bus ticket, but it's also not as expensive as having to own your own car just because every now and then you have to go somewhere. Government should be building, hey, climate change, we should be building solar power because we built power plants, right? Consumers didn't have to pay for power plants, but consumers are having to pay for solar panels. So we built 
you know, the technologies that were required, including financing technologies and so on, to say, how do we make solar cheaper so we can get solar on our homes because we need to not be burning coal and not be burning oil and gas. Again and again, you see sectors where we might believe that the government should do that until we realize, well, the government is, guess what? We are the government. And so let's do it ourselves. We can do it better, faster, cheaper. I think these are great commercial opportunities for people. And I think you're seeing it in spades across. All of us don't think twice before we buy a bottle of water with a lot of plastic and a little bit of water. We do it every day, many times a day. The reality is there should be government providing us clean water. Why do I have to have a bottle of water that I have to buy so to make sure that I'm not getting sick? This is something the government should be doing. But if the government is not doing, or if they don't have budgets, or if we can do this better, faster, cheaper with building distributed reverse osmosis plants we can put in our homes and put in our offices, that's a commercial opportunity for us. Look at drugs. You know, COVID comes around, biggest disaster that the whole world experienced together. And you would have thought, oh, government will come up with some solution to this massive problem. Right. Imagine this was a bioweapon. Government will come up with a problem. Guess what? It was Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca. They had to come up with the solutions and the scientists. And in Pfizer's case, it was a startup. Right. It was BioNTech in Moderna. That was a startup funded by VCs that came up with the vaccines that we all just take, you know, without realizing that this was a startup creation to come up with this new technology of mRNA that led to these vaccines. So I think we will see again and again in all sectors, it's not just about robotics and automation and systems that look big. Across the board, we will see technologies that will improve our resource utilization, resource availability, and distributed systems that are more resilient so that we can sustain both attacks on the outside, but more importantly, the growth that we want our society to have. Last question, which is kind of the, the whole point of Accelerate Defense, and we could do a whole show on it, but I want your, your top line words of wisdom on how non-traditional tech innovators can break into the DOD ecosystem. What is the, the first thing they should start thinking about? Yeah. So as you said, we can talk for an hour about the problems with the U.S. acquisition system. First and foremost, most entrepreneurs don't understand how the government works, right? If you were a young kid who left Ohio to come to Silicon Valley or New York or Boston or wherever you went and you started building a company, or if you were doing it today in Ohio or North Carolina or whatever, you're not sitting there thinking about how does the money flow in the government? What does the legislature do that creates appropriations and then it goes to you know, programs and the programs have these you know, acquisition officers. So even if a general wants your technology, the general has no money to buy anything. He has to find an acquisition group that agrees to buy it. And there's a whole process that goes through it, you know, maybe seven layers of approvals and, and so on. First and foremost, you should understand that it is a process. It's highly bureaucratic. It's somewhat unfair, but it is a process. So find people who have done this before to at least get a sense of what it takes. Just like if you were to sell to automotive industry or biopharmaceutical industry, you would need to find people to take you through that process. You want to get an FDA approval for your drug, you don't just show up as a young person, you know, hey, I want an approval. There's a process you go through to do the clinical trials and so on and so forth. And if you don't do them right, you basically throw all your money into a dustbin. So first and foremost, that's important. But the most important thing is understanding that even within the most bureaucratic organizations, there are people who understand the importance of innovation. You have to find those champions. Now, 
in addition to finding those champions, and they exist in every part of the armed forces, they have usually have small budgets, they're R&D guys, and so on and so forth. You have to find pools of capital that are already available. Unlike corporations that if they see value in your product, they can move money from one bucket to the other easily to buy your product. That is very hard to do with the US DOD. So you have to find existing pools of capital that they don't advertise. There's no website you can go to and find that, but you have to network your way in to figure out who has a pool of capital to focus on, you know, a virtual wall or a reconnaissance mission in in the Middle East or space-based AI systems that are used for monitoring North Korea mission operations and so on and so forth. The pools of capital that you go after. And the last but not the least is, as you're starting to build companies in the space, talk to other CEOs and talk to people who have built companies in the space because they will guide you to people who can get this done faster, better, cheaper for you. You know, most CEOs often ask me, should I hire a lobbyist first? Should I hire a business development person? Or should I hire a salesperson? Should I bring on a four-star general on my board? Is that the way to do this? Should I have a U.S. congressman on my board or ex-congressman on my board? Stop. Before you start piling all kinds of people into your organization that gives you a, you know, a feeling that you're accomplishing things, but you're not, understand the vector on which you want to accomplish things. Are you trying to sell something initially to U.S. Special Operations Forces because they have a small pool of budget that they can use for this. If that's what you're trying to do, a U.S. congressman is not exactly going to be very helpful for you. But if you're trying to figure out an appropriations budget that needs to happen, you know, because money has to be appropriated for a particular kind of technology or a testing or a POC, yes, a U.S. congressman can be very supportive of you because somebody has to raise that somewhere. Somebody has to say this is important for our economy or for our country. So you have to figure that out. And I think, unfortunately, in the past, that has not existed. There's no place you can go and learn that. So it was a lot of black art and you know, a lot of people became these black art dealers and made money doing so. But I think it's starting to open up. And there are organizations now, such as Defense Innovation Unit, such as Silicon Valley Defense Group, and others that are emerging. And by the way, Silicon Valley Defense, Silicon Valley is not Silicon Valley geography. Silicon Valley is you know, the entire tech sector spread across the country, in my opinion. So Silicon Valley Defense Group and others are now creating classes and materials to help you understand how to do this. But this is extremely, these are really large sectors. You know, U.S. military budget is $700 billion plus, And there's additional budget on top of that that we don't hear about. Right. That is massive dollars that you can get access to. And not only is it a massive market for you to go after, but. We are in conflicts all around the world in every which way, and your technology is deeply required. Where in some other places in commercial sectors, it might be nice to have, U.S. military requires it and really needs it. So I think if you can find your way on how to sell, this represents very large opportunity. Well, that was incredibly illuminating. It almost felt like you were reading from the manual. Bilal, we might turn it into a white paper. Thank you so much for your time and for your leadership. No, thank you so much, Ken. Thank you for inviting me, but also just everything that you're doing to continue to push the ball forward. These conversations and others, you know, are really important because we're all learning and we're all learning together. That's that's the amazing thing about Silicon Valley. We all learn from each other. There's no book about how to build great innovative technology companies. And if there's a book, it's probably full of shit. <laughs> you're probably right. All right. Thanks, Bilal. Great having you. 
you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review Accelerate Defense on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find the show. And follow the series today wherever you get your podcasts so you get each episode in your feed when they come out. Accelerate Defense is a podcast from Acme General Corp. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to the team at Acme. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Accelerate Defense. Thanks for listening.